Welcome to the Grip City Golf Podcast, your source for new information, insightful interviews, and good old-fashioned banter about golf in Portland, Oregon. Today's episode is presented by Brink and Brown Sanitation. Introducing the hosts of Grip City Golf, Andy Dirk Johnson and Eric Peterson. Hey, what's happening, everybody? Welcome in episode 12 of the Grip City Golf Podcast. Andy Dirk Johnson, Eric Peterson hanging out with you. We're jumping right into it this week because we are live out at Seamus Golf Headquarters here in Beaverton, Oregon. One of the coolest and most awesome golf companies out there, and it's located right here in our backyard with the man behind Seamus, Akbar Chisti. Akbar, first off, thanks for having us out here, man. This has been so cool to walk around and kind of get a glimpse of the facility and what you guys got going on. So much cool memorabilia. Before we get into the background of the company, how it started and all that, we got to start rapid-fire questions. What's your handicap? Uh, I think I'm about a 7 or an 8, but it's kind of vanity. I shot 89 last time I played. Okay, hey, so, hey that's all right. You know, <laughs> 7s or 8s can go either way, I feel like. You can have some low rounds and some high rounds. It's true. What's your home course? Rock Creek Country Club. Rock Creek Country nice. Club. And uh, what sticks are you playing right now? Oh, boy. I just invested in some Miras, and it's a selfish endeavor. Um, I don't want to get into what I paid, but it is a half set, so I got a good deal on it. <laughs> so, wait, you only have seven clubs in your bag? That's the way you get into Miras is to go with less irons, to go with the odds or the evens. But, yeah, I got I got a set of them, and they're great. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, th- those are my irons. As far as my putter, I just picked up a Scotty Cameron from uh, Redtail. I rolled it about six feet on the carpet. I was like, this looks more accurate <laughs> than what I'm using right now. Uh, and then I have a TaylorMade driver, so that, and that thing's pretty sweet. Okay. So so in your golf bag, you have half a Mira set. So does that mean, like, what what is your iron arrangement then? Okay, the four, set? six, eight, nine, pitching wedge, okay. gap, 58. Because that's all you really need. Is that the justification for it, or is that all you? That's, all the money you had in your wallet at the time? That, yeah, I, I pulled out all the quarters, <laughs> and I said, okay, it uh, can't be less than this. Um, no, I, I mean, when you go and you play, like, Lynx Golf or whatever, I, I started out playing with a smaller set when I went to buy my first set of clubs uh, from the reserve, actually. And uh, a full set of Callaway's X-Forged was, like, a, a big number. I don't remember. And so I was like, well, here's the deal. I don't really use my five iron. I don't like it, you know, so let's just see what it looks like if I just carried 10 or 12 clubs. Yeah. But that strategy is kind of stuck with me and it's a lighter bag to totally. carry. So that's, I I mean, that's fascinating. I've never heard of somebody <laughs> doing that, but it makes sense, right? When if you're going to carry a bag, you might as well have fewer clubs in there. Right. I do miss certain clubs that from time to time, but you know, <laughs> I mean, if, if, if the score is what it is, like I, I don't know if it would make a huge difference. <laughs> if you I don't need have FOMO. To, if you know you need to hit four, just hit, or if you know you need to hit five, just hit a choke four. Right. right? Exactly. Well, three quarters. It doesn't always need. turn out that way, but yeah. For That's sure. the goal. That's the thought process behind it. Well, this this place is unbelievable. Like just getting a look at it, this is like a golfer's paradise. So let's go. Let's turn the clock all the way back. How? Like what year did this start? How did this come about? I read that, you know, through, uh, I was reading up on the company a little bit that you guys just out of boredom started stitching like club head covers. Like where, where did this all begin and what year was it? Um, so 2011 is when we formed it as a company, but a couple of years before that, uh, my wife Megan saw that a special head cover of mine was falling apart and went to fix it. It had a little black knit on the bottom and it was tartan wool from Scotland. My dad brought it for me from Royal Troon. And um, I'd had it for a long time, and I loved it, and I loved the people talking about it. So she went to fix it, and she had been working at Pendleton Wool uh, as a women's wear designer. So she saw it, and she's like, you know, I, I've been sewing for a while. I think I can make a cooler design. Let's dink around with some stuff. And so she started bringing select kind of remnants from work home, and we just started making them. And then we'd give them out to buddies and stuff like that. That's kind of how it started. Is there a better show of true love than to – for a wife to fix their husband's head cover. That's, I mean, yeah, that that's is like supporting, right that's supporting. That's it. That's wholesome right there. It's, it's special. Yes. <laughs> I, I was, I, I thought it was the nicest thing and it, it made it really special for me too. So, so what year did the club head cover make its way back from overseas? Like what year did you, did you, was it like a family heirloom that was handed down? That or? cover my dad brought me from his trip to Scotland uh, in like 2001. Okay. And I had okay. been caddying at Bandon then, so he gave it to me and people automatically thought I knew what I was talking about <laughs> because I had a Royal Troon head cover Street in my bag, cred. you know, caddying down there. And they're like, dude, you've been there? I'm like, 
No. No, no. <laughs> but it's pretty badass, though. I pretty like cool, it. Though, right? <laughs> so it's let me ask cool. you this. Do you still have the head cover that Megan yeah, fixed it's, for you? Uh, I actually put it in a window box with our first check from a special account to me, uh, and it's at my parents' house. So oh, that's I, cool. it's on their wall, but I, I, I think about it a lot because it was like the cover. Yeah. So, so it begins where you're trying to fix this and then you start making them for buddies and stuff. What, what was the point that for you, it became a business? Like how, how quickly did that process go? Did it take a couple of years? Like how long did that take? Um, it took a couple of years. So oh nine up or so, maybe oh eight oh nine is when my, my wife went to fix, maybe went to fix it. And then. Um, a couple years later is when it turned into something like a business. We basically went to our friends at band and we had been, I'd been a caddy there. I had a couple of friends there that were still working there, uh, still working there today. Jeff Simons, um, who checked it out and they liked it and actually were really a big part of figuring out what we needed to do to make a sellable product. Cause it didn't have a logo on it. We were just like, here's what it is. This looks kind of cool. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. That's cool. All right, cool. So what do you think we should do? Well, I don't know. Maybe you should put the band and dudes logo on it. <laughs> like see if that works. So we, we started dinking around there and our first order there delivered in, uh, October of 11. And okay. Bandon was your first account, right? It was our first Besides account. your buddies that you were giving them to or whatever. <laughs> yes. Well, my first, person to buy a head cover for money was Alex Casebeer and they uh their family owns the Toyota and Chevy down in Salem good buddies but he paid I think 20 20 bucks for a head cover and I was like are you sure and he's like he wrote me a check I feel like I should have taken a picture of the check or something like that uh, so the first one went for $20. Who set the price? Did you set the price or he just give you $20 for it? Well, I was like, I'm not going to charge you. And yeah. he's like, he just wrote a check. Like who writes a check for like 20 bucks? <laughs> so, so you collected the first amount of money for the first head cover and you probably looked at that and thought, okay, maybe there's something to this. Was there a moment where you kind of started to get the wheels turning into maybe this is a business? Because at that point you were, I mean, you were catting abandoned and then you became a CPA, right? Right, yeah. So I you was, had like a career in front of you that I, made a lot of sense. I did. Um, I did. I, I mean, I, I wasn't really on a path to being a successful accountant. I don't think, like, I just didn't really, I mean, I worked an audit at KPMG. I met a lot of great friends there. I like, loved hanging out with the people, but the type of work I was doing was not, like, as fulfilling for me. Um, and, and my wife was working a lot, too. While she loved working at Pendleton, she was kind of enjoying just doing basic stuff like sewing. Cause she was like doing real design work and she just, we both liked doing simple things and just, uh, working together. Uh, but yeah, I think we had some ambitions that came to selling it when people were saying, Hey, this is really cool. You know, it's like good I, to get that affirmation, right? I mean, it's like in yeah. your head, you, you think that it makes sense, but when someone outwardly tells you that, yeah, this is pretty cool. I'm going to put this on my golf bag. I think it made a lot more sense than it might have really. <laughs> <laughs> so so well, here ben, you are a decade later. It made a we're ton still of sense, here. Right? I know. Still it's here. still enough Amazing. sense to still, still be here. But, and I'm grateful to still be here. But, like, yeah, I was very optimistic about things. I, I, I just thought it was fun. And I kept working in my accounting job till 14 or 15 when we got the U.S. Open order at Chambers. That was about when I was like, okay, I can't do all of this, right? So when these kind of orders come through, because uh, we were just talking before we started recording, I mean, you do the PGA Tour cards, you're doing stuff for courses. You mentioned the U.S. Open at Chambers. Like, mm. as somebody who has no clue how this business works, how does that, like, do you apply? Are you sending this? Are they reaching out to you? Like, what is that communication like? And when you get that, I mean, walk me behind hearing from the U.S. Open and Chambers Bay and how big of a deal that was. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I think there's a bit of luck involved, you know? Uh, I think that we got into band in and it was really, you know, friends there that liked what we were doing and, and what we were doing was really reflective of what band was. We were trying to capture what band is and turn it into a product in some ways. It's kind of like what it ended up being because I thought of it as something that made a lot of sense for when you're playing out there, a tartan wool head cover. Like, why would you not? Everybody loved my head cover when I worked there. So it's cold. It's rainy. It fits. You're playing some right. Scottish style golf. Yeah. In 2011, though, there was no cat. I mean, Cabot Links hadn't opened. Sand Valley hadn't opened. Stream Song hadn't opened. You know, you hadn't redone 
like locally, like Waverly hadn't been redone. Gil Hans hadn't come through. There's like the, the architectural nerdiness and, and enthusiast space for golf hadn't really developed. But, you know, Chambers Bay opened after we started, or actually probably before we started. I think they opened in 08 or 09. But this whole vibe around was kind of collecting. Yeah. So we were designing this brand at this point that was connected to what golf is all about. Uh, and so we started to just look at those courses that uh, made sense for this kind of product. And not every course really made sense for this kind of product. Um, but, but that was kind of like we would be outward reaching for folks and saying, hey, what do you think of this? But also at the same time, like once you get it in the bag, like people start talking about it also. And so we were lucky to have some good advocates for our brand pretty early. Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny you mentioned the connection between Bandon Dunes and what Seamus is and how those are very much similar in, in terms of what they're trying to be and how they're trying to fit. One of the things I'm reminded of is I remember Mike Kaiser telling me when I was at Bandon one time, he said that we can spend all the money we want on advertising, but our best marketing message is what our customers tell their friends about us when they leave property. Right. So that word of mouth effect. And when he said that, it really stuck with me because I was like, man, he's so right. Like advertising is worth something, but it's nowhere near the value of what the people who are there when they leave and spread out back to their normal life. And someone says, how was it to be abandoned dunes? And they have great things to say. That's really valuable. It's adult Disneyland. You have to go. And same thing with a product that if you have it on your golf bag and you're standing on a tee box, just playing at wherever your golf course is. And someone says, wow, that's a really cool head cover. Tell me more about that. That that's probably worth a lot, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, Mr. Kaiser is above all my greatest inspiration. He and the boys, Michael and Chris, have inspired me and, and actually advised me at times too. But the thing is that what you're talking about when somebody um, values something and they tell somebody that they believe it, that has so much more validity than posting a sign up and saying you should do this. Um, and, and so I agree with you. I mean, that, that sentiment has, uh, has to be our biggest, uh, component of marketing for our brand is just the word of mouth. Yeah. Well, and, and then, I mean, you worked at Band and Dunes, obviously you get this head cover from overseas. It's a big deal to you. I imagine golf has been a big part of your life. Like how did you learn the game? How did you grow up in the game? And, and clearly it's been a passion of yours for a long time. Right. Our, our family, we don't have golf. I mean, our family's from Pakistan, right? <laughs> and so my dad grew up playing cricket and, uh, polo. You know, and and my mom didn't do too much for sports, um, but they the thing is that like once we came here, he came here in '67. We grew up uh, in Beaverton, and there were some families around there that played golf, uh, and so there was like a neighborhood shootout that they decided to do a golf tournament out at Claremont. I never really played, but I went and I really enjoyed it. There was a pro uh, named Rich out at Arenco. Uh, who would give me lessons. I think he is close to the PGA section of Oregon now. I can't remember, but you know, there's a, there was a really good community for learning golf. So Claremont, Orenco, and then once I was getting really into it, we joined Rock Creek and the junior program. There was fire, dude. They had like boatloads (laughs) of kids and it essentially was the daycare, like in fifth grade, sixth grade, you met Donnie out and he's helping us with our ops. We were there every day in the summers morning to night just freaking grinding you know drop the kids off in the morning you spend the day at the course yeah Yeah, you know and then by the time i was 12 my dad comes to pick me up and i'm walking down the fairway with a cigar and he's like what the fuck are you doing (laughs) over there and i was like why i I wanted off of harry like harry's this older dude who like (laughs) harry carmen he'd be smoking cigars and stuff and he's like this is cool at all like i'm kind of proud but like you need to put that thing out So, that's a great story. So for, it sounds like Rock Creek and junior golf, that's when it, for you, in terms of golf as your passion. <laughs> Community-wise, really it was great, okay? Yeah. I didn't hang out. Like, we had, like, a Pakistani, Indian, Persian community here that I hung out with. But socially, outside of that, I didn't really hang out with people that were from around here. And golf, like, man, I connected with so many people from here, and, and they were so welcoming, yeah. you know? Uh, and my parents felt like it was a safe place to leave the kids with some good people for the day. So how, how did that how did that translate to then jumping in a car and driving down to Bandon Dunes? Like where how did that process well, go? Well, I mean, I went to like 
99 or so, we went to Bannon as a family. Uh, we stayed in a lily pond. Like, it was just Bannon Dunes. It was $35 to play. God. That was the state rate back then? We went in November of 99. Can wow. Oregonians get grandfathered into that rate? Because that'd be great. I'd love that. I'm not with the grandfather program. <laughs> but uh, maybe there's somebody who is. Yeah. <laughs> we we got to get them on the pod to get the grandfather rate. Yeah. <laughs> So, if we do that, then he's got to do grandfather rates for the head covers for 20, yeah, 20 bucks. Deal. 20 I'll give you guys a $20 deal today. <laughs> $20 deal? I should okay. be, yeah, we should be hooking you up. Um, <laughs> and then we went back in 11, or, oh, oh sorry, 01, when Pacific Dunes opened in 01. So we went, and I really enjoyed it. My dad took us down, me and my little brother, um, and and I just loved it. It was like July of 01, and I just said, I don't want to go back. So I talked to the guys in the shop. It was Jim Wakeman working he's now out at crossings and he was like you know um sure you know like if you want to come and work here we'll we'll hire you can you be here on monday and i was like uh yeah so i just came back went down that was it i went there every summer in college so 0105 and where'd you uh, go to college portland state okay so you were you, your roots were in portland Smoking cigars at Rock Creek. <laughs> cigars. And working at Band of Dunes. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that's yes. a pretty good life. It was very good. It is very good. I'm very blessed. This is for sure. <laughs> and so you're at, you're at Bandon, and t- tell us about how the Seamus seed kind of grew from there. So you, were, you had this head cover that your dad gave you, and people would comment on it. It breaks. Megan fixes it. Right. Is it, did the wheel start kind of turning at yeah, that Yeah, I was really always wanting to do something like this. I was really into making stuff, like how things are made, I guess. Megan likes to make stuff. I actually am no good at making anything. I just appreciate it. Um, and so in our family, there's uh, we, we have a surgical instruments factory on my mom's side out in Sialkot, Pakistan. And so I'd go over there in, in my youth, and I'd be really into how things were made. So uh, they also had athletic wear being made, and, and I just thought that it'd be so cool to someday have, like, our own little factory where we made stuff. That was, like, a young age thing that I thought was cool. And were you thinking medical supplies at that point? No, I just always thought like factories were cool. Like yeah. making stuff is cool. Like even at working at KPMG, I got to work on inventories and manufacturers of like a variety of things. And I was like, this is going to be cool. So for me, it was going to be something that we could make uh, that would be made here. I always thought that making something here domestically was awesome, as did Megan. Um, and, and the, the, the name kind of came about, I don't know if you were asking about the name, but Seamus is, um, Megan's parents had this Irish terrier who was staying with us a lot named Seamus. There you go. And I was really trying to sell Megan on the idea a little bit of doing this business. I was like, what if we just named it Seamus? And she loves Seamus. And I, I was like kind of mixed on Seamus in general because we had a history, you know, Seamus and I, we, uh, was it a good history? Well, I gave Megan the ring when we got engaged, and he swallowed it. <laughs> <laughs> so the first, like, off the bat, he was, like, three months old, and he was staying with us for the first time. I gave her the ring, and the next morning, I, she calls me at work. She's like, I was in the shower. I took the ring off, and Seamus swallowed the ring. I'm like, <laughs> did, you get it, did you get it back? We need to know that. Did you it get had it? To come, she had to do this hydrogen peroxide. Yeah, thing. yeah. And is it, it came out? It came out, but that dog... I had to go through a lot to get it out. Yeah. I mean, right. but a regal, playful dog that kind of is what it's all about. He didn't give a shit, didn't listen. Right, right. <laughs> I didn't think anything would top winning a cigar as a kid walking up the fairway. And now we got dogs eating engagement rings. I yeah. love this. Yeah. I can't wait to see what's next. So at what point, like, so you start with the head covers. That's obviously kind of you know the, the what you're the main thing you're known for at first. Yeah. When do you start branching out? Because I mean, I'm walking around in here, and it's amazing the it's amount of products you guys. It's insane. Make. You know, I had a problem really in trying to do everything. You know, we 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 have this value amongst us at this at Seamus, and it's just we're always trying to make people happy and make things that are cool that they might like, and the way our product line expanded was like we would jump on anything like hey can you make a wine tote uh yeah how many do you want let's Let's, do it we can do that or can you make a golf bag for you know those opportunities would come up like when pinehurst was open in the cradle their president tom pashley was like hey we want to have these par three bags for this course and it'd be cool if you could do that 
well, sure, we'll figure that out. Everything has a story to it where somebody asked for it or we were talking to somebody about it and all of a sudden we started doing it. Um, and how many of those things become like permanent parts of your line? Like yeah, that, the whole business side of it, I, we're still kind of working out. <laughs> okay, we'll get there, we'll get there. But, but the thing is that like, you know, some things do and that's yeah. our product development is people that are asking us for stuff and us challenging ourselves and our team to figure out how to do it. Wow. Well, and, and it sounds like having someone come up with the idea of, hey, especially someone like at Pinehurst, like Tom Pashley, if he thinks that his customers would want it, that's probably gives you pretty good idea of like, hey, maybe other golfers would want this too. And yeah. what better way to prove a product than to yeah. fulfill that first order? I guess yeah. the challenge then becomes, to Dirt's point, like how do you decide to keep making it or to just, all right, that was a one-off, let's get back on track? Well, I mean – in each of these cases, we've we've got a unique space in golf, right? A lot of golf companies are either direct to consumer or they're uh, in golf shops only, right? We are a little bit of both. And with us, like if we want to try something because everything's made one by one here, we can run something on our website and say, here's five of these things. What do you think? And if it sells, then we do more of it. You know, mm-hmm. I think the, the putting cup, during the last couple of years was a great example of that. When people were sitting at home, not doing anything, we were like, let's make some putting cups for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and then let's see if other people want it. Right. And then, okay. You know, all of a sudden it's the player gift for a variety of big events and, and it becomes a success for us. Um, I don't know. We just kind of test it out and see if it works, but we've had failures too. Tell us about the. Tell us about the anvil. I love the idea of making something for yourself too, because that's exactly what I would do. Be like, I kind of want to. This would be fun—a putting cup in my house. Like, yeah, oh, I'm going to make one for myself. Yeah, and then we'll sell a couple, maybe. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, might as well. Yeah. Might as well get some enjoyment out of it. So I know, like, one of the, I guess the the second product I think about that it, to me is like a hallmark Seamus item is the when you got into the ball marker game. And they weren't just ball markers, but they were very identifiable Seamus custom metal ball markers. That when right. you see one, you know it's Seamus made. <laughs> right. Curious how that started. Right. Um, well, we we met this blacksmith, Lyle Poole, in, in southeast Portland. He's off of Hawthorne. And his whole family's like, his dad is a blacksmith. And he learned from him with his brothers. Um, and I... Saw is we found his bottle opener at one of these shops and it was so sick. I mean, it was all like hand hammered and it had the scaling on it, so it looked rustic. Uh, and it reminded me of the old hickory clubs, right? Like every old hickory club um, was hand forged, and golf pros used to make clubs that way, like on a freaking anvil. That's like Tom Morris, like was making stuff that way. So it made sense to me to try to make something in golf. Since we were in accessories, I decided the thing to start with was a divot tool, actually. And the divot tool that we made was like an ice pick. It was like a metal shiv. It looked like something that would literally (laughs) poke a hole in your pocket if you put it in your pocket. Uh, And we launched it, and people thought it was cool, but it was just kind of a fun thing. Uh, And as we were going to the show, we made some ball marks to just give out to people as a gift. at The PGA show, right? I think it was 13 or 14 that we did that. Um, that's a spectacle. I mean, what a great place to just go and just have the yeah. antennas up and see what people want and what people are doing. Yes. And it, and it was one of my favorite times of the year. Um, I love that show too, by the way. Like yeah. it's, it's a lot of people in the golf business are like, Oh gosh, like what a pain it is to go that. I think it's awesome. Well, it's just the time you get to meet people and connect. And now even more so after not being out and about, we're looking forward to our next show. Um, so I, I made these, we, we made these marks, Lyle made them, we gave them out, uh, a couple of people liked them, but it was like crazy. You know, I, I didn't think we could sell them. Megan was like, we could totally be merchandising these. These are totally cool. We should do it. Uh, and I didn't really believe her cause it was going to be really expensive. If you think about it, nobody was making really expensive ball marks. That's basically what I saw it as other than I really liked it for myself. Like I like to hold on to the things that I like with with these golf accessories and and so we gave them out and um a couple people liked them so like the ceo peter millar scott mahoney he was huge advocate for he's like 
can you make these with other logos on it? I was like, no, nah, we're not really selling. He was like, all right, I want you to make them, make me a bunch with some Peter Millar logos. I can hand them out. I was like, okay, fine. We can do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's going to give them out to some great people. And he was an advocate for it in the beginning. We didn't do them for any shop until <clears throat> I think they were opening the punch bowl. Oh, down the, at Bandon? Yes. And the vendor couldn't get their delivery on time. And they ordered like 50 ball marks. And they're like, can you get these down in two weeks? And I was like, yeah, we'll get those down there in two weeks <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah, Akbar says yes to everything. I do. This is a problem. No, <laughs> it's not. It can be good, but yeah. it can be a problem. Oh, so, I think it's amazing. So we get down there, um, and like in the first day or two or whatever, this, they sell out, right? And they're like, this is really awesome. So, And what are they selling for? I, I mean, I worked there at that time. I think they were 30 bucks or 25 bucks. They weren't cheap. Yeah, it's about the same. So you want to talk about like really – challenging that question of like are, are people going to pay premium for a ball marker right and so it sounds like th- that question got it, answered favorably yeah at that time it did i mean nobody was put I mean, it was it was uh our ball markers or like other metal ones and then um poker chips and stuff or whatever's free right which even the free ones i like i mean i prefer those oftentimes yeah you know the big the, the collectible bigger ball mark wasn't something that was there when you went into a shop trying to figure out what to get for yourself or for somebody else. There's, there's a lot of like decisions to make, like, whereas you could just get some really nice ball mark that they're going to keep or give to somebody. Yeah. Uh, and later we added this opportunity to personalize them so you can hammer them on site. And you did that. I remember seeing you at the U S open at chambers and you had an anvil there in the merch tent at chambers Bay. Yeah. And you were stamping initials into like you had, I think you had the the U.S. Open logo on one side, and on the other side, you'd stamp their initials or name or something. Can't believe right? you remember all this, dude. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah, but, no. I, it's and true. what stood out to me, honestly, this is the first <coughs> thing I thought of when I saw you there and just saw what you were doing there. Was first, you were the only one outside of embroidery, like where they just wheel in an embroidery machine to embroider a U.S. Open polo. You were the only vendor there that was doing something personalized that wasn't that. I mean, it was like when you go to the carnival yeah, and you yeah. put a quarter in the thing and it smashes your penny, but it's like actually Akbar doing it. It's like handmade. I'm and the guy at the carnival. The guy. So I'm the that carnival guy. guy. <laughs> it's the dude that runs There's the times company. when I feel like that. There's but, a man know, in the machine. It's um, <laughs> like we were trying to do anything we could do to be part of that U.S. Open. I'm a huge fan of the USGA. The USAM was played here in 96 at Pumpkin Ridge. I caddied in it. Oh, wow. Ever since then, I've always thought the USGA is like, this is it. They brought Tiger Woods to my hometown. Right. I'm always going to. We still wanna, tell stories about that. I always want to talk about the USGA. So when they were coming for Chambers, I had a buddy, actually, uh, Jamie Faye. Do you remember Jamie at I know all? the name. He ended up passing young, but, you know, a great friend of mine who went up there, and he was assistant manager. So he was helping to get that tournament going, and he was an advocate for us to get into that thing, too. Um, but, but as it went, you know, we tried to come up with something unique. So we were just doing head covers. We do the ball markers. Um, we, we went to the show and we said, Hey, met with Mary Lou Pazinski, the buyer for the USGA. She brought her team and I was like, these are the ball marks we make. They're cool. I think they're kind of cool. What do you think? And I took an anvil and I said, we could even personalize them. What do you think of that? She's like, Oh, let me see. I was like, well, I, I had never really done it at that time, but I tried to do it and I did it reasonably. Okay. She's like, okay, so you can do this in the tent. And I was like, of course. And she's like, you can do like a boatload of them in a short period of time. I was like, no problem. (laughs) So again, you're saying yes before you really know. (laughs) Of course I can. Uh, yeah, I definitely was trying to do that because I wanted to do something different too. I didn't want to just put something on a thing. It ended up being, um, I would say success. I mean, people loved it and people still talk about, I mean, they, they collected them and, and, then that was our first U S open. And since then we've been in it since then, we've been able to get back into that. And so do you still hand stamp, hand forge each one? Like if you're doing a mass order, like how do you, how do you fulfill those? Yeah. There's people hammering each Walmart, uh, in Southeast Portland that everything's so cool. done by hand. So everyone is different and unique. Do you go back to the blacksmith you mentioned on Hawthorne, you said? Yes. You go back to that guy to do the big orders? Yeah. So we, if I see one in a shop somewhere, was that made on Hawthorne? It was made in Portland. That's yeah. so Amazing. cool. Yes. Do you remember who you caddied for in 96? 
Oh my god! I should look at the sheet. It was the fella from California who shot like eighty two, eighty four. Not a good, not a good performance. I don't think I brought him much luck. Yeah. <laughs> You didn't make it to the weekend. You didn't make it to the match play stage. No. You were just stroke play. So I just were watched. Done. Yeah. Did you? I mean, did it? What, like when he was hitting five iron, did you just say, "Bro, just hit a choke four. Uh, choke like, four. Right? Yeah. Just you don't why need a do you half the set? Yeah. You can shoot eighty four with half <laughs> these clubs. Dude. Throw these out. I'm gonna throw them in the water. Right. I can pull this off. Uh, this is so cool. So one of the things that I that I love, and you know, I kind of the, the focal point of the podcast is trying to highlight how many cool companies there are in Portland. Oh my and they, God. These things are, I mean, we're sitting in Beaverton and we're walking around looking at your facility and the amount of employees that you have, the places that are, you're stitching stuff. You got designers like that. That has to be a prideful thing for you being from here. And then hearing that a lot of this stuff is in house that is made, whether it's at this facility or another facility, it's all hubbed around this area. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We, um, we love being from Portland. A lot of the reason we were able to find success is because of the community that surrounds us. I mean, if you think about why are there so many golf companies here? Why is golf such a big thing? I mean, we have Bannon Dunes like four and a half hours from here. Um, and for those who are going to Bannon from Portland and also sticking around and playing, it's we're some of the hardiest enthusiasts here that played through the winter. It gets wet. But our golfers play a lot of golf, you know? Um, but then on the flip side of it, the community to be a maker is strong as well. And so we've been able to find people who can sew shops that can help us. sew, uh, blacksmiths to fabric vendors like Pendleton. Yeah. That's the, the Pendleton stuff is so cool too. Like that you can pull from different fabrics, like walking around and seeing some of that stuff, some of it from overseas, you got like cowhide back there. You got stuff yeah. from Pendleton. Yeah. Like that's gotta be so fun to just walk around on a daily basis and think it's, all these fabrics are in here and they're going to turn into products for people. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it, man. It's pretty special. It's and so our team cool. is pretty awesome. I mean, they're, they're just such great people and they just love doing this work um, and, and working with our golfers. So, so I'm I'm curious, Akbar, the when you're building a new product or at least thinking of something new that that's different than what you what you've done in the past, how do you balance building something that you know people are going to want? It's just a matter of competing against the other products like that in the marketplace versus building something that maybe people don't have. Like maybe take it back to like a, a high end ball marker, kind of like changing the mindset of how someone thinks about something. Does that go through your mind when you're thinking about new product ideas? Um, I guess inherently with the stuff that we've found the most success with, it's been products that aren't really out there. You know, nobody was really making the ball marks like that or head covers like ours at all when we started. Since then, there's a lot of companies doing the same thing. Um, and it's inspired a whole different direction. And so when it comes to products in the future, it makes it really hard for me to do, to look at what's out there. And we've never really paid a whole lot of attention to what other people are making or even what people are buying today. Um, I think that uh, the connection to golf and the game is probably one of our strongest assets. And I think that oftentimes we're just coming up with stuff that we think we need. Um, but then now there's more people than just us trying to figure it out. And, we have people who buy our product that are also giving us a lot of feedback. We never made a mallet cover. Like, we've never made one, you know? Um, but but we're going to make one now. Because <laughs> people are asking for it. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people have been asking for it, and, and so we're going to do it. But I think if we were really smart business people, we probably would have started with making mallet covers, I think. <laughs> we got to it a while and ago. And worked around to everything. <laughs> I love it. What's what's the most like? It's kind of a cliche, but what's the most challenging part of running a golf shop in Portland, Oregon? Well, I think being an entrepreneur has its own entire story of trying to figure out how to do stuff that you've never really done. Um, but the part I've been most challenged with lately is learning what I'm not really that good at. Um, and it, it turns out the list is pretty long. And so with us now, we've reached the size where, you know, there's a whole thing of like, when you're starting up, you're like, yeah, I'm doing the shipping. Yeah. I'm doing the website. Yeah. I do the photos. Probably yeah, all out of your house, out of your garage. Yeah, I, yeah. You're doing it all. I yeah. do all this stuff. And then you get to a certain point where it's like, becomes evident that you can't do all that. Well, 
you know, my biggest challenge has been letting go, you know, and, and letting people do it and not treating this thing like my baby. And, and the fact is that we've got like amazing people that have come up in this process that are taking on these areas that I could no longer do. And even for Megan too, um, which her job kind of evolved into like, if I was out there selling stuff and talking to people, she was the one who was making it happen, you know? Um, but in, in her wake, she brought up a lot of great people that are now running all production. Yeah. I, I can imagine the the trust of you create this brand, you create this company and then allowing other people to have major roles in it. That that's gotta be challenging. Well, uh, I think it, could be less challenging for some people, but like for me, it was a whole process. I think apart from that, you know, there's the day-to-day challenge of, of running a small business, you know, and I think that this past couple of years is where I learned a lot of that is that it was tough. We couldn't find people. It was, yeah. um, and I think that's what kind of moved us backwards a lot because when we couldn't find people, we started doing everything again. Right. Um, but, but now we're in a much better cadence and, Golf has uh, grown surrounding us like quite a bit, and so that's been nice. One of the few positives of the pandemic was that so many people picked up golf. I mean, right. you couldn't get you know push carts, you couldn't find clubs. You no, can't. I mean, no. people are trying to order custom clubs. It's going to take you nine months to get them right now. If you're it's- a surfer and there's no wave to surf, you're not a surfer. You know, uh, with us, like there was not a lot of things happening in golf for a while, and then it just started picking up right before the pandemic and then during the pandemic it just went boom just exploded yeah yeah well your wife is still back she's putting labels on shipping boxes so she, you guys are still running uh, the show should be the one on this extent. you should do a podcast Seamus 2 or 1.5 and check in with her and fact check all this stuff i'm yeah, saying yeah we'll run through uh, all the things yeah. but she is doing shipping today because randy's out and i don't want to call out randy on this podcast <laughs> come on randy where you at randy but randy's awesome this is, this is yeah. like the first time he's been out and and and, and i was like i always like to go back there because he's a big beaver fan um and but yeah she's shipping and i don't know she gets stuff she gets shipped done yeah she uh, gets shipped done i love that that's a good saying i don't know she she likes doing work i mean sewing cutting making stuff like that's in her family her grandfather was a woods like he worked with wood like a lot of the furniture in our house is from him but my, my megan is is an incredible maker and as far as like uh, leading this place and and being the person that people want to work for and talk to. Like, Megan has so much compassion and empathy that she just takes such good care of our people that the reason I'm able to go out and say, yes, we can do this is because of her and the people that have surrounded her. Yeah, you got a good team here. Now, I got to throw this one at you. Uh, we love when people have a, a soft spot on their heart for Bandon, which you obviously do uh, for, for business reasons, personal reasons, right? Uh, do you have a definitive ranking of the Bandon Dunes golf courses? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think like I, I always say that preserve is my favorite golf course preserve in general, just because I have had the most fun out there. I don't know how much fun you've had out the preserve. Great oh, time. always fun. Have you made an ace there? I know. No, I haven't. Have you? What, what do you Did love? You? I haven't made one there. I made one on trails. We're on trails. 17. Damn. It's a, it's a good ace hole. It was front left. Mm. Just bounced once and disappeared. It was my first ace. It was, it was Tell them what you did with the ball in the 18th hole. Yeah, and then on 18, you know, I forgot that. You played it. And then I, I hit it dead right and lost it. Oh, no. It lasted 30 seconds. <laughs> from a green to a tee box. <laughs> But I love preserve, and I—I I mean, I don't disagree with you. I think when we ask this question, either of ourselves or of, of other people, preserve just kind of gets mentioned as an afterthought, and there's no reason why that couldn't be included in your top six. You know, we say top five now that Shoebrand is open, but why not throw preserve in there? So then, what about two through six? <laughs> two through six. So is it crazy? There's six courses. The course there. that there's made me turn around back. and just stop in my tracks was Pacific Dunes. Okay, yeah. like ultimately that was the course that made me change my direction and what I was doing. Um, but I would say that trails and old Mac, like old Mac, I love, I love match play on old Mac, like playing a match on old Mac is, is so much fun. And it's more fun for me than the other courses. I think either there or trails, I get mixed because 
ultimately you're not really playing each other. You're playing the course, right, in those settings. Um, but that's not to say that, like, an afternoon spin at Sheep Ranch isn't special. And then when I go to Bannon Dunes, like, that's that's just, like. It's the OG. The OG, yeah. Down memory lane, you know. <laughs> And Smoking a cigar down the 10th fairway. That's right. <laughs> Smoking a cigar in the wind and lighting it every six minutes. <laughs> no, I usually don't smoke cigars over there, but, you know. A little too windy, a little too wet. Not a good cigar It's weather. just difficult to try to manage so many things. Yes, it is. Well, that's why you got fewer clubs, so you got extra hands for, for a cigar, you exactly. know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, less less yeah. weight in the bag. <laughs> Exactly. Well, should we get to the, uh, the big finale, the big finish? Are we yeah, ready we, for this? We just wanted to ask some kind of lightning round ask questions, some of which sent around Portland and others more philosophical, deep dive okay. kind of questions. But hopefully they're all fast. I'll let you start. I got some, and I, I added some to the sheet, so we'll see okay. where this goes. I'll let you fire off first. What's your favorite? We, you mentioned your, your home course in Portland, and it might also be your favorite, but what is your favorite golf course in the Portland area, if it's not Rock Creek? Well, Rock Creek has that memory lane thing for me, you know, which is great. Um, you know, I've always loved Portland Golf Club. I think Portland Golf Club has some of the best flow to it of any course in this area. Um, as far as, like, private clubs go, uh, on the public side, uh, let's see here. I, let's see. I feel like Rock Creek is not public, is it? It's like you got community courses. We got, dude, we've been playing out at Red Tail. Red Tail's right, yeah, we've right down the road. 5 a.m. on Mondays at Red Tail. And it's beautiful out there. So Watch long as you don't get chased by the geese, the geese are angry. And then on, if you can get off on the back nine, you can hit Dutch Bros on seventeen on your way to eighteen. You just walk yeah. across. Do you, can you actually do that? Like, is there a we little hole in it. the gate? We done it, and it is great. <laughs> there's nobody. If you tee off at like five o'clock, there's like a window of two, three, four weeks every summer where you can go play. And uh, we did it on a Monday, and we were in work at eight. Everybody, we played like eight of us out there. Um, and we hit up Dutch Bros. So you're in the office by eight with your Dutch Bros, and people are like, "Everybody's to see like, this morning. Yeah, you're quad like, yeah, shot, <laughs> ready to go." I already need played it after getting up that early for golf. Uh, other golf courses in the area that I enjoy: Eastmoreland is just freaking beautiful. Uh, Heron Lakes is always fun, but it's deep for me. I'm in Beaverton, so it's too far. Yeah. Where I will drive, no matter what, for an invite is to Arrowhead. Have you been out to Arrowhead? Arrowhead's a great track. Uh, yeah. Arrowhead's sweet, and if there's obviously invites to other courses in the area like Waverly and Columbia, and those are, I mean, Columbia's par three course, the Mason course is so dope. Yeah, it's so sweet. Uh, let's see here. What's your favorite golf memory? Uh, <clears throat> well, I I have a couple. I mean, I, I have I have had a, I've had four hole in ones. Well, that's get that humble pick that humble brag up right now. Just just, just, just throw just it out it. there. <laughs> Where were they? Uh, Rock Creek, uh, Evergreen and Mount Angel. Yeah. Pumpkin Ridge. Which hole? Oh man. Is it six or six on ghost is the 200 yard par three. Does that yeah. sound right? Yeah. Um, I did it with a seven Five. wood a persimmon, Five. a persimmon wood, a persimmon wood. 2015. This guy loves hickory clubs. He tried to get me to play hickory clubs and abandon. I was like, bro, no golf's hard enough. Don't I, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, like, I was playing with Megan, though, and, and she was walking along at the solstice at Bandon. And so it was on my last nine. I was on uh, Old McDonald with Matt Brown from the coast. He he runs Highlands and Manzanita. Alex Casebeer, who bought our first head cover. Uh, Tyler Jakes, who is a member out of Oswego Lake. Good buddy. We were all playing in the solstice. We had our wives with us. And so you got them to walk with you for, for the last last round. Okay, they came out and walked, and so we were at the turn stand. Megan was buying all our drinks. We got like transfusions and all that other stuff on number eight at Old Mac, which was our sixty third hole of the day. And everybody else had gotten down the hill, and I was like last one up. So I just threw my ball down, and I had my freaking it's the persimmon. I have it. I'm going to show it to you. It's right over there, okay? It's, it's sitting on the ground. <laughs> it's a wooden club, dude. You see it? Oh, I see it, Eric, yeah. you see that thing? Is that a seven wood? It is a seven wood. A seven wood persimmon. 
Cobra Baffler with the rails, the brass <laughs> rails on the bottom, and that freaking thing went in. Oh, my gosh. And then that got done, and Scott Milhauser, you know, from Trails is the one who's – they give everybody 100 bucks when you get done. Yeah. And he's like, dude, I heard you got a home one on, you know, eight. I was like, yeah. He's like, don't worry, though, because actually the drinks are covered because I would have actually ended up having to buy drinks for, like, 150 people. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That bar tab's going to add up They would have stuck it to me, too. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been like, dude, you got yeah. that whole one. We know about it. Top shelf. Give me the <laughs> Get scotch. your card yeah. out. Let's go. <laughs> and I'd be like, ah. Oh. But that was pretty special. Well, that's a pretty cool That's a pretty cool story. Uh, music or no music on the course? Oh, my gosh. I listen to music all the time. Yeah. What kind of music do you listen on the course? Oh, you got to listen. I mean, I'm, I'm pro music, yeah. Okay. I'll listen to anything other than death metal. Death metal. That's probably the only thing that when if you turn that on on the first tee box, I'm going to look at you sideways. I think tunes are a way to kind of get people to open up, especially in the beginning of the round. You know, just, hey, what do you mind? Just put something on and just all of a sudden. Turn some reggae, some classic rock, whatever you want. Yes, yeah. exactly. If Ease nothing the else, they'll open up about whether or not they like the music you're playing. Yeah. I agree, though. It does cause people to just, like, talk more. Like, let's just socialize a little bit more. Right. Totally agree. Who is your uh, dream foursome? Oh, well, I haven't really thought about that in a while. I mean, I, I typically equate my round of golf to being as good as the group I'm with. Um, I've had some great rounds with my dad, my little brother, Ali. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't know who I'd have as my fourth, probably the host. <laughs> I think that's a pretty solid group. Your brother, your dad, and then a member at whatever club. Whatever club we're playing. Yeah. I don't think there's anything Akbar's wrong with currently that. fishing for invites, right? What, what club are you going to get Yeah, Somebody at Waverly? There's your host. There's your dream foursome, man. Oh, that is perfect. All right, let's finish with this. What I want to know, and this maybe this isn't a lightning speed question, but I was curious the most rewarding project that Seamus has been involved with. Is there one that you can pick, or is that like trying to pick your favorite child? It is a little bit, but I think that um, I mentioned my little brother. He's a doctor in internal medicine, and he was working, um, you know, obviously part of Frontline during COVID, and uh, they were needing masks. And so we made masks for a bunch of people on the Frontline, and that was by far, I think, the biggest, most impactful project we've done because of its scale. You know, we made... I think uh, we ended up delivering about 10,000 masks or something like that to frontline workers. 10,000? Yeah. And, we, we, and you made them all here? We made them in our shop. It was in the very beginning of the pandemic, and, like, the state of Oregon and the city of Portland had asked about, can you make masks? You so know? the state of Oregon called Seamus. Yeah. Business Oregon, and then also the state of Oregon, and then a couple of hospitals like uh, that were putting out RFPs for making cloth masks, not any N95s. And so we made masks, and we started shipping them out to folks, and um, basically did like a one to one. I thought that was a pretty sweet project for us. That's amazing. And so, this, so early in COVID, so what was that like? A April 2020 or so was it like super early when nobody really knew what was going on but yeah masks were needed but nobody really knew where yeah. to get we them we made masks like, for like a month because that seems like a pretty big diversion from your core business right I mean the it same is. material potentially but that it, I mean it does yeah I mean we didn't make tartan obvious. wool masks in fact <laughs> we did think about it and we did the research which was like pretty informal but only enough to learn that um tartan wool is not antimicrobial like it's like <laughs> Don't put that on your face when you're trying I'd to... I'd rock one of those cowhide ones. You should have turned that into a mask. <laughs> you could do that. You front, might yeah. s fix one problem by creating another. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, you know, it was one of those things where, yes, golf dried up. I mean, every order got canceled, right? Every yeah. golf shop canceled their order with the exception of, like, some of our key accounts that kept their orders. Um, but we had this opportunity, and we were like... Well, we have extra capacity, and now people are asking for it. And, you know, my little brother was like, can you just make them and send them to some of my buddies? And so we started sending it to them, and then they sent it. Yeah, I got the buddy that wants to get. And they were just extra masks that we, they would wear on top of their standard masks because it, this was like an interim weird solution uh, on the way to getting N95s, right? Mm -hmm. And in that early time, nobody really knew. I mean, I, I don't even really know that I knew what an N95 mask was for a while. It was like, for, for a period of time there, it was like, get me a mask, any mask, you know? Dude, 
Yeah. There was like 10 and and 95s in circulation in the entire country. So when you got through that and and you can kind of look back on that project and and really add up how much time and effort went into that, it seems like that was, you look back on that with kind of a a sense of pride of like, you know, we took the bull by the horns and and jumped into something. That was the biggest risk I've ever taken. Um, I mean, because we diverted everything we were doing to just making masks. Wow. You know, and, and that was really because people wanted them we had an opportunity because we could make them and it was only a short-lived deal like we weren't trying to shift our priority to that um we had the ability to do it right and so um we had the option like we had been advised to furlough all our employees um and you know financially as it turns out it might have made more sense but um we I was just like, why not? If we're if we really have this moment to do something, let's do it and then see what happens. Because ultimately, if we decided not to do this in later time, we thought we should have, it would be worse. Yeah, like it'd be the worst thing to think about that later. That's, well, and it yeah, seems like that awesome. actually aligns with a lot of the stories you've told about some of the products you've made, where someone calls you and says, "Can you do this for us?" You say yes, <laughs> and then figure out how to do it later. And that seems that, you know, we kind of laugh about how that seems like kind of a crazy way to operate, but it, when in fact it ends up kind of being what you're all about, right? Yeah. And then that same, that same mentality applies in a really positive situation like with that, right? Yeah. I mean, that doesn't seem like a coincidence to me. Does it to you? I mean, it, like the way you handled the COVID thing and the way you handle Tom Pashley's phone call, right? it's kind of the <laughs> same mindset of like, yep, not really sure, but... <laughs> The answer is yes. We'll, we'll figure it, it out. Yeah, I, I think that probably is it. I mean, we're forever wanting to take care of people, you know, and, and I think that doing things that make people happy, make products that make people happy and can connect, um, I think it's it's great to do that. And the end result is products that are worth holding on to, yeah. you know, and, and that have a story. That's a great way to end a podcast right there. That's perfect. That's a great way to end it. Akbar, first, just congrats on all the success. It's amazing. You're an awesome institution in this area, and it is so cool to get a chance to see the facility and all the stuff you guys make here. So thanks for hopping on the podcast. Congratulations, and this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys for coming out. Thank you for having me. Let's meet again on the golf course. Yes, please. I'll be there. I hit it hard, man.